Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Nancy Burrell, who is the author of I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and All Memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion. Nancy, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks so much for having me on. So could you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this memoir about this time in your life? Okay, so as with many uh, answers to questions, there's never a short answer. (laughs) And so um, it it began as um, a little article that I wrote for a guy named Reverend Hank Pierce, who used to, um, um, he was a roadie for Slapshot, and he became a minister. And he asked me one time if punk rock influenced my teaching. And so I wrote something up for him and I was like, wow, like I never really realized how much punk rock was such a huge part of the teacher that I became. And so I wrote it up as an article and submitted it to Education Week and it kind of went viral. And I said, oh, wow, I kind of have something here. And so that was the one part of it. And then the other part of it was when Facebook came around, I started, um, on anniversaries of shows, I would post um, stories about the events that took place on those days, different concerts I saw, different bands I saw. And invariably, some man born in the 90s would try to correct me or contradict or refute what I was saying. And there was all this mansplaining going on, and it was irritating me so much that I decided that I would just the woman's voice was being cut out of the narrative and I would just write my own book and, and then, you know, come at me (laughs) if you had an issue. (laughs) So can you kind of um, set up what your life was you, because you, you don't talk just about entering sort of the punk scene. You kind of talk about what it was like growing up in um, Norristown and the area you grew up. And can you talk a little bit about that to sort of, get us prepped for what brought you to punk? (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a, you know, a very privileged, white, um, upper middle class background in suburbia. I went to private Catholic school. Um, My dad was a Marine, so very strict. Um, I felt um, a lot of oppression as a kid, you know, which you wouldn't think, but, you know, I can remember doing things like starting a petition in, in like sixth grade. And so, you know, there was a little bit of a, an activist brewing inside me. I think I went to a very patriarchal school. My, my hometown was very patriarchal. And so after I went to the first college that I went to uh, to become a paralegal was a two-year school. And I came back um, and I moved to Center City, Philly. I was ready for my life to begin. <laughs> you know, I felt pretty stifled up until that point. And, you know, one thing you talk about, like, be- you that you've been to shows before, you've kind of, and I appreciated this, that often we think that people are just into, if you're into punk, it's everything else is just, we don't care, right? But you talk about how there are other musicians, how there's other music that sort of brought you to a, just a love of music in general, right? Before you even sort of entered the punk scene. Right. As soon as I went to my first concert, which was Rod Stewart in 1975, and then that was followed by like Alice Cooper, Roxy Music. 
wow, I was one of those kind of people that got shivers when the band came on stage. I just thought live music was so powerful. And of course, in the 70s, it really was. I mean, there was just band after band, Bowie, Queen, Hope Sparks, and Patti Smith, and Iggy Pop, and just so much great music out there. So that became my life in high school. That was my escape. That was my refuge. That's where you know, I was, uh, I, I think of the song Life on Mars by Bowie, where he talks about, you know, the girl with the mousy hair going to movies to escape. I was the girl with the mousy hair going to concerts to escape and find myself and my tribe. And it was, um, there was a lot of great gateway music um, that gave me an appreciation. I was finding my way. I would go and see practically anybody who was playing live and decide, well, yeah, no, it's kind of not for me. And yes, I love this. Yeah. No, one of the great things you have photographs throughout your book, but you also have like, <laughs> so you have this list of the shows you saw and you, I think you said you wish you wrote down where you saw them, but just looking at that list, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> That's like, right? like what, a, what, yeah. What a list of shows, right. Um, right. To be able to kind of see those and to experience that. So can, so can you describe, um, so you, so you um, became a paralegal, you moved into Philly. Can you kind of describe Philly um, during this time period? Because Center City Philly is a little different today. <laughs> yeah. So Philly was, um, it, you know, it was dirty. It was derelict. It was dangerous. Um, there was a lot of boarded up places. There was a, a great deal of crime. Um, but underneath, bubbling underneath, was all this creativity and fashion and music and art. And so that's really the part that I wanted to tap into. You know, I was definitely a little afraid, but. Uh, having a dad that was a Marine, he, you know, sort of prepared me for anything. And, um, you know, you got used to it and um, didn't, you got jaded by it almost to a certain extent. Um, but it was, um, it, it was definitely a precarious situation at times, but it was also bursting with all this art and, and culture and, and so much fun. <laughs> um so can you talk a little bit about right so you're in philly you've just kind of moved there and have this sort of freedom so can you talk about like just getting what, what it was like to get into the scene and part of the scene and just find find your people yeah funnily enough i i had uh met a, a engineer a kid who was studying uh engineering at Lehigh, and he did an internship or something in in my town, and and roomed on the dorm in my class uh, in my uh, at my school in Harrisburg, and he was really smart. Like, wow, he opened my eyes to a lot of new things, and um, I was walking down the street like maybe the first month that I lived in Philly, and I ran into him, and that was really the opening because uh, now I had somebody to go to shows with. And so Bob and I would go to the hot club and um, see bands. And then um, after that, I met a whole crew of, of cool punk women like Shava and Anne and Lisa and Carol, uh, who I talk about in the book. And then after that, it was just every night planning on, you know, where we were going, what bands we were going to see, you know, and it was really 
exciting. And there was, we were really fortunate. There was always something happening in Philadelphia. If it wasn't a, a national act, it was a small local act. And there were tons of great local bands in Philadelphia at the time. So I would work at the law firm by day, um, saving as much money as I could so that I could afford this crazy nightlife at night. And it was really uh, a fun time. So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of those places that you would go to and see shows, what those venues were like um, during this time? You know, because some of these places are not around anymore, but they are were, if you think about Philadelphia and Philly music, they are kind of institutions, right? And so what were some of those places that were putting on shows and, and, and bringing in these bands? So the main ones in the very beginning were the Hot Club and Omnis. And the Hot Club was booked by a guy named Bobby Startup, who was, you know, is, is still kind of a legend. And he was the one who was bringing bands like Madness and the B-52s and Lena Lovage and the Cramps to places like the hot club and the difference between clubs like the hot club and omnis as opposed to going to see uh, a band at the tower theater or the spectrum is that afterwards the band was in the audience the band was outside on the sidewalk smoking cigarettes and you could go over and talk to them like that wall between the fan and the artist was totally ripped down and you really felt like you were part of it when you were at the hot club you know, the stage was only like to your thighs. I can remember getting like a line of bruises right across my thighs after every show. So you were like right in the performance. And so it was really um, a time when I was most present in my life where I was totally concentrating on what was going on on stage and the music and the performance. And it was, you know, so powerful to the point where now when I look at my own students and I realize how cost prohibitive it is for them to see live music, I feel really bad for them because they can't experience uh, what I did back then. Seeing these artists on stage and basking in their creativity was just so much fun. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about like being able to see live music and and even for these bands it's become cost prohibitive to travel like they right like so a lot of times and and this gets and maybe this can get into you kind of booking band because one of the things is like you want to bring in bands especially in the early days it was really you call them up on the phone and what are you doing and and they can travel for gas money and give them a place to sleep. And that's not something that can happen as easily anymore. Right. There was this whole network, you know, that we had that we did through very expensive long distance phone calls and the U.S. mail. And that is how, you know, I mean, that's how I met my husband. That's how I, um, you know, started booking bands. And it was um, fairly easy to do uh, because you would, you know, so-and-so would come into town and they would say, oh, you have to talk to this person or, you know, you have to um, get in touch with this band to play. And so at the time, I never realized it, I don't think, but there was a complete network of bands and and promoters and uh, facilitators that worked together 
to bring the music to the kids. And that was really fun. Um, it was, um, when I look back now, I think, you know, how the heck did we do that you know, <laughs> without, um, you know, cell phones and all this different stuff, but, <laughs> but we did. And it was a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment for me, um, as a young woman at the time. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I always love about, I mean, one of the many things is like when we start to sort of think about the history of punk and think about sort of the spaces that punk existed in, often they're not, right, they're church basements or, you know, the VFW. So can you talk a little bit about like, like booking those shows that you talk in your book about like, you know, doing like the punk fest and getting everything ready and booking, um, those locations and what that was like to like find the VFW and <laughs> yeah, for us, it was, um, the elk center. Now, when we booked the elk center, we just knew that our friends had done a show with Bauhaus and, um, a pylon there a few months before that. What I didn't know about the elk center was that it was this community center for, um, black folks in Philadelphia. And it, it was this amazing place where they did everything from having boxing max matches to having jazz bands come and play. I mean, Bessie Smith's funeral was at the Elk Center where we did our punk shows. I didn't know any of that history until maybe three years ago. So finding that spot and talking to the Elks who were, you know, just the greatest men that, that let us come and bring, you know, and I was always worried, what are they going to think about our loud music and our freaky clothes and stuff? And they couldn't have been more accommodating. They truly were the center for cultural events in Philadelphia, not just for um, the people in their community, but also they allowed us to have that space. And so having the Elks was really a, a gift and one that I really did not understand until many, many years later. And so um, it was a great spot. We just had to get a PA. I think, you know, there was a nominal fee to rent the hall and they were very accommodating. And it was a great place to see a show. It was, you know, kind of dark and and cool. And the sound wasn't always <laughs> acoustically the best, but it had a really great vibe in the room. And so, and you brought in like, well, you had your little brother help you out, right? Like it was just kind of like finding someone you could trust to hold the money and then like get the show going. Right. Our first one we did was a punk fest. We, you know, we called it punk fest one because we knew we were going to do more and we just did local bands. And then after that, we sort of branched out into doing um, national acts like Black Flag and then later on uh, Minor Threat and, and Agnostic Front and SSD Control at Buff Hall in Camden, New Jersey. And so... Um, each time we built up a little more confidence in doing it, that first show 
we had no idea if anyone was going to show up. We figured we knew the 50 or so punks in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, and we weren't even sure if they were going to come. And I can remember standing outside and there was just a line of people uh, waiting to get into the first punk fest, uh, streaming in hundreds of them and just, wow. That was a sense that was, I, you know, I marked that as one of the happiest days in my life because we had worked really hard to pull something off and we achieved that goal. And it was enormously empowering for me as a young woman. I just thought, wow, I can do anything now. <laughs> so, well, One of the great things is that, um, you know, with putting shows on at the Elks, putting shows on at these uh, spaces is that they can be all ages, right? That was, uh, you know, another great thing that you were doing and thinking about is that you could open and allow access to a huge group of folks that couldn't get into a, a nightclub. And that was definitely the goal when we first, when we did Punk Fest one was to bring the music to the kids. And then after we did the shows, other people started doing them as well. I remember the band Autistic Behavior brought in the Bad Brains, and that was the first time I ever saw that band. And they quite literally blew me away. I just could not believe how amazing that band was. And so other people started doing shows as well. And we had, you know, if you read the book, you know, we had some conflict with the over 21 club in town who took bands away from us because, you know, they did not appreciate our youth movement. And um, that was a little annoying, but um it was really cool to see this. And it wasn't just happening in Philly. It was happening around the country. And um, again, tremendously empowering and, and fun and uh, a great way to meet people and have access to all kinds of music. So you, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and you brought it up, I'm great, is Bad Brains, because you describe that concert, that first concert in this way, you know, this very physical way of being there. And I appreciate how you also talk about your struggle with bad, right? Because um, for, I maybe talk a little, maybe you could talk a little bit about bad brains sure. and that experience for people who don't know um, bad brains and sort of their legacy and yeah, sure. So the first time I saw Bad Brains was at the Elk Center in January of 1982. And I can remember I was standing in the back because there were some little kids at the show and I was afraid that they were going to get hurt. And all of a sudden I just, you know, heard the opening notes of that song, Big Takeover, and it just drew me right up front. I was like, oh my God, there was nothing like that band. The musicality, the energy, the explosiveness, the individual performances and how it all came together, the song structure. There was no band and there is still no band like the early Bad Brains when they played. I mean, it's just I I cannot I struggle to even find even as an English teacher, I struggle to find the words to explain how incredible that band was when you saw saw them live. And I'm glad that there is video that exists that does sort of capture some of it. Um, so then as the bad brains went on and they embraced Rastafari, they became misogynistic and, and homophobic. Um, and it was a dilemma for me. I remember seeing them um, 
MDC played in New York City, and I went with my um, boyfriend at the time, Al, or maybe it, I don't even think we were boyfriend girlfriend. We would that was like our second time that we had ever met. And and Dave from MDC, who is a brilliant man, really called them out for some stuff that happened on the road. Um, where they were, you know, definitely doing some questionable things, especially with regard to homophobia. And years later, I read an article by um, an interview with Daryl, who really talks about the racism that was out at that time, because as he points out, there were plenty of other bands who were sort of steeped in that kind of uh, homophobia as well. And none of them got attacked as much as the bad brains did. And so for me, as a woman, it became this really conflicting, but awakening moment, like, how do I reconcile loving this band so much with these things that they're saying and doing. And, and it was the first time in my life that I ever had to confront those things. And so it was a, a, a great learning experience for me. And I was always really happy when, you know, they denounced what happened and, and apologized for it because they were such an important band to me. And, you know, if you go on the Facebook pages and uh, different groups of people will talk about this, you know, to the, to the cows come home. And um, I think it's important that we don't look as muse at music to be some kind of um, bastion of, of kittens and meadows and things like that. It's, it's a time where people are finding who they are and what they believe in. And it's not always going to be pretty or right or, and it can be decisive and um, it's how you grow and it's how you learn. And so, I'm grateful to the experience, you know, when I'm, but I'm also really glad that I can listen to my bad brains, early bad brains records, because I still do. <laughs> uh, so, and, you know, you bring up being a woman in, in this space. And so I love for you to talk about this. I mean, it flows throughout your book and kind of the reason for it. And I, I like, I'm so Anytime any woman starts talking about it makes me so happy because we lose it. Right. We we decide that women are off to the side. Um, you are not the only person who I have like listened, talked to, um, who was a woman involved in Philly with punk, who was kind of like that's what you what people talk about. Hardcore is not our scene. Well, it's not our scene. And so can you talk a bit about that and um, what it was like to be a female, to be participating in hardcore um, and, and what all these men have got wrong? <laughs> the, yeah, well, the men are writing the histories, right? <laughs> right. And, and I know that my experience is not universal and I would never be narrow minded enough to think that, you know, it might, my, my experiences time bound and city bound. And so other women's experiences in hardcore, especially in the later years when it became super aggro and misogynistic, um, their stories are, are just as important. But for me in Philadelphia, women ran Philadelphia. Um, we there were women on stage in bands like Becky Reck, who uh, played with the Excuses and went on to play with uh, Lunachicks, and um, uh, women singers and and guitarists, and so there were women on the stage, but 
there were a lot of women behind the scenes. My friend Allison, who is a brilliant woman as well, she really, she's a few years younger than me, but she had way more life experience than I did. And she kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. And she was instrumental too in helping us do Punk Fest. She ran uh, a fanzine called Savage Pink. So Philadelphia was always a place where um, there was a diverse group of people that liked punk rock and hardcore. And so we just did it. And for me, um, as a woman who grew up with a Catholic school background and a father who was a Marine, there was nothing that gave me more power and uh, self-confidence than punk rock. I mean, it really showed me what I could do. And so it was a very empowering um, experience. And so when I hear, I'm, there was uh, some academics from Drexel University years later who, you know, wrote about how we were, you know, behind the scenes and in the shadows. And, oh my God, I don't think I was ever so angry <laughs> as when I read that, you know, because you know, to them, they have this idea and, and they just want to reaffirm through, you know, their phony research, the patriarchal status of men. And I wasn't having it, you know, it really made me angry because really it was women who were doing so much in the Philadelphia scene. And it was, um, I never, ever felt disrespected by any man in that scene. In fact, I felt like I had 30 or 40 big brothers, you know, looking out for me and helping me achieve my next goal. And so um, it was not the experience that some women had or that some men think women had. We were not holding anyone's coats. We were making stuff happen all the time. And so to hear people say I gave my girlfriend my code and I went into the like we were up front you know literally figuratively however you want to put it we were right there and the good thing about it is there's plenty of photographic evidence that proves that so whenever anyone says you know oh there were no you know I, I had you know an argument with someone on Facebook there were no women at shows you know some guy from Denmark recently was telling me how there were no women at Boston shows and I was like are you kidding me right now? Like it's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. Um, and, and I will argue with you to the cows come home about it too. Like I should give it up maybe and, and not, not engage, but I can't stop myself because it's to me, it's so egregious for anyone to suggest otherwise, you know, we were outnumbered. Sure. We were a smaller percentage. Sure. But we were there and we were making things happen. Yeah. No. I, and I think, right, you, your book um, and books like it need to happen because of that. Right. Um, because that history is there, is getting lost um, because these like the, the man, the, there's lots of mansplaining often in punk, especially in looking at the history of it or trying to remove women from punk and saying that they're part, right? Like Riot Girl is, I, you know, I get on the Riot Girl shtick because, you know, that's not really punk or this isn't really punk, right? And, you know, so I appreciate how much you are pushing women to the forefront as they should be. Um, yeah, and- it's it's just annoying to hear people say it in this day and age and to deny 
you know, what happened. And, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I will fight and argue with you until the cows come home, because there's plenty of evidence that says otherwise. And I hope that um, other women tell their stories as, as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so- that researchers actually do their research, <laughs> you know, like these Drexel people, the, the research that they did, I would not have accepted from one of my 14 year old sophomores, you know, like, are you kidding me? How far did you look? You know, who did you talk to? So, yeah, well, and I appreciate that, right? Like, I appreciate that you kind of like there were places where you kind of called out researchers, people who are, you know, have written on hardcore, who've written on punk and kind of said, listen, you know, there's other experiences. Like you were saying, there's more experiences here. You you're you're missing lots of voices that exist and you need to talk about and talk to. Right. And I know it's, you know, it. it to, to research things like fanzines and stuff has got to be difficult. But if you're going to write an article, then, you know, you have a academic obligation to get it right. Yeah. So you also like, like speaking about being there and being in it, we have to talk about like the infamous um, Kensington brawl that has come up. <laughs> I should, um, it's come up a, a number of times on my, when I'm interviewing people on my podcast. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So, um, yes, I talked to a young woman who wrote a book on um, recently on the the DC scene in the you know late seventies and eighties, and Kensington, the Kensington brawl keeps coming up. So, can you talk a little? Maybe we could describe. Ta- I was a teacher in Philadelphia, and I worked with students who, um, even though they were from Kensington and Fishtown, that line was like if you were from Kensington, like that that you know that was a big difference, right? Um, so, can you talk maybe a little bit about Kensington? in this space and then let's talk about the Kensington brawl because you were there. Yeah. So, you know, the Kensington always had a a, a scary reputation, right? Um, And Fishtown too. Like to me, when I found out that Fishtown was this totally gentrified area, I was shocked. You know, I had no idea. Um, At the time when these shows took place, which was 1981. Kensington was a low income. It was white working class neighborhood. It had notorious reputation as the crank, you know, methamphetamine capital of the world. And it was considered one of the most dangerous places in Philadelphia, statistically. Um, The inhabitants were fiercely territorial. Um, They were always ready to scrap with you and they were brutal when they were in a fight. So Kensington was a pretty perilous place for a punk club. And I don't know what we thought when we were going there, maybe we thought we were going to win them over, you know, but we took our chances. So, and it was easy to get to, you know, it was a short little L ride away. But as soon as you got off the train, the drug addiction and the despair permeated the uh, surrounding area. You could even tell, even its location, it was in the shadow of um, the elevated train and, you know, kind of had a rundown and decrepit facade. You knew it was, you know, many times past its heyday. Um, There were some 
shows there with Cheetah Chrome and Susie and the Banshees and the Circle Jerks and Stranglers. You know, people came home unscathed. But then, you know, my friend Mike Condi, who was in the proteins, had a terrible experience there where they went to check out the um, show the night before and they got jumped and beaten and, and um, had, you know, they warned us, you know. But of course, we didn't listen. So, when I heard that Black Flag and SOA and autistic behavior were going to play there in July of 1981, well, of course, there was no way I was going to miss that show, right? Um, and so we went. And the problem was, there were a couple problems. Number one, I can remember Chuck Meehan, who's kind of a legendary figure in Philadelphia, warning um, the DC kids, like, you're not in DC anymore. Um, this is a different area. You, you know, you've got to be careful, but there were a lot of drunk kids from DC at this show, um, that night. So as soon as I walked into the building, there was a, a tension in the air that was, you could feel it. Um, there were little skirmishes, during autistic behavior set. And I noticed locals jumping into the pit, taking cheap shots at punks, punks giving it right back. Um, and, you know, SOA sh- set was, was good. And then I think he sang, Henry sang a couple songs with uh, Black Flag because he, you know, that was SOA's last show. And I saw people dashing for the door. Uh, right about then. And a big DC skinhead walked right up to me, looked me right in the eye. I can still see his face to this day, even though you know, we, Ian and I have tried to pin down who it was. I, I have no idea. We never quite figured it out or, you know, maybe who knows. Um, punched me in the face. And I don't know if I got, I, I went down on the ground. I don't know if I got knocked out or not. I can't remember, but I always carried mace with me at the time. And I started macing everyone to get to the door. Um, And I can remember running to the train and hiding just like the movie, The Warriors, you know, because I was terrified of getting jumped on the platform. And, you know, my friends and I, we were lucky we made it safely home. And after that, I really wanted nothing to do with the DC punks. And when Ian and I revisited that fateful show uh, in 2018 and talked about it, it was really interesting to get Ian's perspective, you know, um, he noticed right away that the issues pop, you know, people popping off, but he knew that his friends were drunk and that they were starting, uh, issues with people. And, um, when he saw some smaller kids run in and take a shot at a DC kid, he knew right away it was a setup and he was on stage and, you know, he was screaming at his friends. Oh no, this is a setup. Don't go outside. Don't go outside. But it was too late. And the, the DC kids walked into an ambush uh, with locals with bats and pipes and other weapons. Uh, they just came out of the alley and attacked. And when the police finally came, they really didn't care and they really didn't do much, which was typical of that time. And at one point, you know, Ian was even trying to break something up and the cops started beating on him. And so finally there was like a standoff and uh, the cops said, well, we're leaving in 10 minutes. And Ian and Cynthia Conley and her sister jumped in his duster and um, tried to start it. And it was 
it was dead. The car was dead. The alternator had died and he had no power whatsoever. And, you know, Ian was like, holy shit, you know, what am I going to do now? All the other cars had gone. It was just him and some DC kids sitting there in a dead car with the Kensington Tots just waiting for the cops to leave. So Ian appealed to the cops saying, you know, you can't leave us here. You got to help us out. And after some negotiations, the cops gave him a jump start and they were able to get out of the city. And um, I think the car broke down in Philadelphia uh, on the way out, but outside of Kensington and they had to spend the night in a hospital. But other DC kids did not fare so well. Um, some had to spend the night in the hospital. The tally of injuries was, you know, like 22 stitches from a bat to the head, a slashing across the back, a lead pipe to the face, a skull fracture from a billy club. And so you would think I wouldn't return to the starlight again after that happened. But of course, we went back for the notorious dead Kennedy show a year <laughs> later. Um, I remember someone telling me, um, um, a woman who interviewed me for uh, Razor Cake said she she kept saying, "Stop going back to Kensington," you know, as she was reading my book. <laughs> you know, like, Stop it! Why are you going back there? You know. <laughs> so, but you can't. You can't stop going back. Right, right. You but, think you know, it's going to be different. And and being like living, I you know, I spent fifteen years in Philly and you know, here and heard about the cops and heard about this time. So also reading, reading your book, like when you, that, when you were talking about that, and like the cops and, and I, you know, I, my husband is a Philly kid through and through. And so like when I said she, the, the story about the cops were like, you got 10 minutes. And he was like, that sounds about right. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Like at least they gave him 10 minutes. And, um, and <laughs> after they threw, you know, after the Kensington kids threw a bomb at us at the, um, at the dead Kennedy show a year later in what would surely be considered an act of domestic terrorism today. Um, one of the girls who was really injured, she, you know, had her foot blown apart, um, went back to get police reports because, you know, police were there that she had to be taken to the hospital and nothing existed. It was all mm -hmm. gone. So surprisingly. Magically gone. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, Yes. So you got to love Philly, but yeah. Um, so this book ultimately, I mean, is also kind of a love story, right? Like, so can you, we, we can't not talk about you falling in love over like through punk. So can you talk a little bit about like meeting your husband and um, sort of how punk brought you love? Yeah. You know, it's funny when my students always say like, how'd you meet your husband? You know? And I'm like, well, here's how, you know, and like you try to explain it in language they understand because of course they don't buy records anymore, you know, <laughs> but I bought that record, that first SSD, the kids will have their say record. And I just loved it. I thought it was so powerful and so good. And there was on the insert, there was a line that said, uh, SSD control wants to play your city and a phone number. And I thought, great, I'm going to get this band to play in Philly. And so I called the number and um, the person who answered was Al and he could not do the show that I wanted um, them to do. But um, we ended up talking on the phone for four hours, which was ungodly expensive back then. Um, but I really liked him and I liked what he had to say. And we knew a lot of the same people and he sounded really cool. And I liked, you know, I like people that sort of seem to have their life figured out, you know, and so he and he definitely did. And so we at the end of the phone call, 
Um, he couldn't play the show that I wanted, but he said, we're playing um, at in Staten Island at the Paramount with the dead Kennedys the next week. And he would put me on the guest list and, you know, ask me if I wanted to go. And I was like, I'll be there. No idea how I was going to get there without a car, without a driver's license, you know, nothing. but I got some friends to go. And that's where I saw SSD control uh, play for the first time. And I met Al in person and, um, Al's a very intimidating physically and kind of mentally too, I guess, you know, he's, um, I would say definitely Asperger's, you know, only, um, I, I don't know if he's, you know, I don't think he's ever been diagnosed, but he's definitely, um, from my background as an educator, I could say, you know, he's, he's definitely a person who doesn't understand social cues and highly intelligent, you know, but, um, and so he was very intimidating to me, sort of a challenge, you know, I think, and I liked the way he looked, you know, cause he had lift, he lifted weights and he was in really great shape. And, you know, at the time I was smoking cigarettes and drinking and doing stuff. So was kind of new and exciting. And I thought I can remember there was another girl uh, who was moving to Boston for a guy and she was like, come on, move to Boston with me. I was like, oh no, that's too far away, you know, but Al and I kept meeting up. Uh, we kept, we, you know, met at that MDC show and then he came to visit me in Philly and I came to visit him in Boston and I was really looking for a change. You know, I was in a kind of a dead end career, um, I was looking for something new and, and different. And so I said, I'm moving to Boston. And my parents were so mad. <laughs> you know, they were like, my mother was like, you're moving to Boston and you're not even engaged 500 miles away to be with some guy. And I'm like, yep, I'm going. And, uh, you know, years later, they would say it was the smartest and best thing I ever did. Um, but we just really just both of us fell hard in love and, you know, here we are 40 years later, still together. So something killing each other every day, you know, the pandemic was hard. (laughs) It's, you know, in a lot of ways, living with someone, you know, like that, you know, who is on the spectrum like that is great because you know exactly where you stand and there's just absolutely no BS. Right. But on the other hand, when you're locked in in a pandemic, it can be super annoying too. So uh, we survived. I guess we'll we'll <laughs> we'll be together another forty years. But well, and he survived. Even I mean, you talk about like I have to. The other show I really need to talk about is Camden. Like you know, like can't. <laughs> I can't even believe someone booked a show in Camden. Um, uh, so like, yeah. So you, so one of the first like you know things you did like come down and play in Philly and it'll be okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry, yeah. we can go to Camden. So Camden, New Jersey, I think is still one of the poorest areas in the country, urban areas, right, and spaces. And um, yeah, even though. Uh, Walt Whitman lived in Camden. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit of, can you talk about that show? Like, is that, you know, that experience and going to Camden as well? Yeah. So that was, um, we decided there was um, a, a core nucleus of kids uh, led by Allison and a guy named Ron Thatcher, who was also an activist. And we decided we wanted to model the um, 
BYO, the Better Youth Organization that Sean Stern was doing out in California, where they were doing shows and sponsoring bands and making movies. And so we were like, we're going to, we want to emulate this model. And I was friends with Sean. He was one of the people I called on the phone and talked to, although we had never met. And um, he would tell me which bands were good and who to book and stuff. And so he gave us his blessing. And our first show was we had started to notice that there were some schisms happening um, on the East Coast between cities. So we wanted to have bring all these local, all these uh, bands from other cities together in a hardcore love fest. Right. So we do two bands from Philadelphia, Crib Death and Flag of Democracy. We get Agnostic Front from New York, who were just starting out. It was one of their first shows. Uh, John Watson was singing for them at the time. And then we get SSD Control from Boston and Minor Threat from Philadelphia, right? I mean, from uh, D.C. And so we're psyched, right? This is, you know, this is definitely a meeting of the minds and it's going to be great. Now, I was sort of in love and running back and forth to Boston and Al was coming down here and I wasn't, I didn't really pay attention to the venue, but I remember Allison telling me we, we found this great hall in Camden, New Jersey. And Camden was dangerous, but we were jaded. You know, we were dealing with Kensington. We, everywhere was dangerous, right? We had no perspective anymore, you know, everywhere was like that. And so we weren't really anticipating any issues. And I can remember when I called out to do the show, he said, don't book me into a war zone. Like Al had a job as a machinist and he worked very hard to buy a van and to have nice equipment. And he was like, I don't want to be anywhere where my equipment's going to get stolen or anything's going to happen. And I was like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> right? And so within, you know, he comes and picks me up in, in Philadelphia and we drive across the bridge to Camden and there's like 11 Boston crew in the car. I get out to find where to load in the equipment. Ian McKay from Minor Threat comes over to talk to Al at his driver's side window. And I look down the street and I see this station wagon like driving crazily down the street. And this guy with this crazy look in his eyes uh, behind the wheel. And I'm like, this guy isn't stopping. Like, oh my God. And sure enough, luckily, you know, Ian was a skateboarder with incredible re reflexes. As the car came at him head hard, he jumped. And so the car, you know, hit the van and, you know, completely smashed in um, the front of Al's van. Ian was down in the street, sneakers blown off. Kids were skateboarding. They grabbed the sneakers and they got the license number of the, um, of the car and within maybe a half hour 45 minutes they brought the guy back to the venue and said is this him and we were all like yes that's that's him and he said his car was stolen and then apparently brought back to his driveway afterwards but the cops made it perfectly clear that coming back to testify or deal with um any kind of a court case was not something we wanted to do. And um, so once again, you know, nothing, you know, there was no justice served in that case. Um, and there was a lot of doubt of whether the show would go on at not. I can remember one of the guys in my threat, like being like, let's get out of here. Let's get in the car and go home, you know? Um, but Ian said the show must go on. And I, you know, I don't know whether it was as a result of that 
or, you know, and, and kids were getting, and, you know, that was the other thing. Kids were getting jumped and, and mugged on the way there. And when I went to find Allison, she's sitting at the bar with, you know, these 12 black bikers who look like something out of a, you know, scary out of a comic strip kind of thing. And I'm like, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, and she's like, these are the ghetto riders and um, their clubhouse is next door and they demanded entry. And Allison was very beautiful. It still is. And very charming still is. And um, she explained what we were trying to do. And they were like, you know, they succumbed to her inimitable charms. And they were like, we're going to put out on the street that this is a riders party at Buff Hall tonight. Had they not done that, I don't even know what would have happened. But once the neighborhood knew that it was their party at Buff Hall, the attack stopped. And I remember that that they, you know, they told me, they said, uh, they said, don't go outside. You know, we can protect you if you're inside. Don't go outside. But one point it got so damn hot. I was dying and I went outside and all of a sudden I felt something hit me in the side. I thought I got shot. That's how how hard that it hit me in the side. And it was like a big triple D, double, double D battery, one of those big ones, you know, that somebody had just thrown at me. And I was like, well, I should have listened to them and stayed inside, you know? And, but because of that fear and whatever has to be the best show that I ever saw in my life. You know, every band brought their A game and there's video that exists of both SSD and, um, minor threat playing and there's no denying it like though they were incredible um and i can remember i was like i'm going to just sit over here on the side i was i was sitting right with the guy who was doing steve i who was doing the videoing and because i knew it was going to be menacing in the pit and i you know i was like i'm just gonna watch this and not get injured um again um so and it was incredible it was an incredible incredible legendary now legendary show and of course it's the you know we had to figure out what we were going to do with al's van which was undrivable right the guys had just lifted it to the um to the sidewalk i called my dad right at like one in the morning, two in the morning. I don't even know what time it was. And I was like, dad, my boyfriend from Boston's car, but he was like, why your boyfriend from Boston? I didn't know I had a boyfriend, you know, but my dad was really good in clutch situations. And he was like, just have the van towed to Norristown and I'll take care of it. And he did, you know, and that was the first night that my parents met my husband. And I was so nervous because you know, he's Al and he's, funny and um my mom gave him ice uh gave him um orange juice with ice cubes in it and he was like why does it have ice cubes in it and I was like shut up <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna fix just, your ranch <laughs> yeah right right just like you're meeting your the girl that you love you know parents for the first time like you don't question these things so, and my dad was unloading all these baseball bats out of his car and saying like, are you on a baseball team, Al? And I was like, oh my God, just get me out of here. You know, but my parents were great. They, they took care of everything and Al came down and got his car back and, you know, close to, they had a friend that fixed cars and he fixed it for him. So, you know, it was kind of great. And I'm surprised Al even talked to me after that. I remember, you know, now we have like 11 11 Boston crew in my 
tiny studio apartment in Philadelphia and I've got to figure out how to get them back to Boston. You know, back then, no internet. So you just looked in the yellow pages and I rented them this U-Haul that was like a cargo truck. There's no communication between the, the driver, whatever, no air, probably, you know, no lights, just threw all them back in there and it was completely dark and they made it back fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> All's well that ends well. Right. And I mean, you left and you moved to Boston, but you have, like, I just have to say, um, that you have this great line about living in Philly because you say there's something about Philly that becomes a part of your soul. Um, it never leaves you. And I was like, that's yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it's, it's so true. I, you know, I love that city. And if I have my druthers, I'm moving back when I retire in two years. You know, that is my goal. And so many people are saying, oh, my God, it's so dangerous now and it's so bad. And like, I'm sure it is, you know, but like, whatever, I want to come home. I want to come home. I love Boston. Don't get me wrong. And I probably would stay here forever if not for the weather. <laughs> the weather's brutal, you know. Um, and, and I, you know, it wasn't as important to me. I guess when I was younger, but now that I'm older, snow, and I live right on the ocean, so it's freezing all the time. And so I'm ready to come home. And I do believe, you know, I hear things about Philadelphia all the time. And I'm like, yep, you know, even, you know, the Will Smith thing. And like, we could talk about that till the Calgs come home. But like, Will Smith's from Philadelphia. Like, I totally could understand what happened that night, you know? Um <laughs> right, wrong, whatever. I know why it happened, you know? Um, and that's it, it, even in my job now, you know, when things happen, my, my friends will say, you know, like, well, you just, you, you take things too seriously, like let it go. And, you know, if somebody offends me or, or doesn't treat me or one of my friends, right. I'm like, they're dead to me. They're dead to me. And they're like, oh, you know, you're always just, you go too crazy. And I'm like, well, I'm from Philadelphia. Deal with it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching Abbott Elementary, which I think is really kind of brilliant. Um, but shout out to that. But it very there's so many things that I'm like, you get it. It's funny, but if you're from Philly, then you really know what's like. Right. You know, like then it's really funny. <laughs> right, right. And I, I, I wrote something up, you know, uh, about Philadelphia for a, another article, and uh, it's my finest work, I think. You know. <laughs> really just captured the city um well you know it doesn't want to be new york it's fiercely loyal um it's passionate and um it's just a, a great place to to be and that city made me who i am today you know like i like my hometown of norristown but once I started going into the city and experiencing what the city had to offer. That made me the person that I am today. And I'll always be grateful to that, you know, right or wrong, crazy or not crazy. You know, it's helped me sustain and, and deal with things. You know, when I first started teaching, um, there were, there were gangs at my school and stuff and, and uh, Cambodian gangs. And I felt really, you know, bad for those kids. And on some level, I felt I could connect with them um, because of punk rock, you know, even though I didn't look anything like them. And um, 
you know, sometimes they would, you know, I would go in the neighborhoods and, and, you know, try to find kids that weren't coming to school or, you know, just go down there just to let the kids see a teacher in their presence. And people would say like, aren't you scared? You know, aren't you scared coming down here? And I'd be like, I'd bombs thrown at me. No, I'm not scared. <laughs> you know? So, um, that Philly upbringing sort of, uh, even today, you know, I had a kid just move here from New Jersey and, um, the minute he found out that I was from Philadelphia, you know, I'm a 60, you know, soon to be 63 year old white woman. And he's a young black man. And he was like, Oh, you're from Philly. I'm from Jersey, you know, like that kid's in my room <laughs> every day, you know, and, uh, it's, it's just something that bonds you with people. So you've written this book. And so, I mean, I could probably talk to you forever about pumpkin <laughs> Philly, um, but you know, we, we do have things we have to do. So like, I mean, are you working on something new? Is there like my final questions always like, what are you, what's going on? Is there things with the book you want to promote? Is there something else you're doing? Like, yeah. So I, um, we did a book together, um, Al and, um, Jamie and I with Phil and Flash, who's a photographer, a photo essay book for SSD control, where I, you know, I sort of compiled everything and, and I have my own little stories in that. And hopefully that will come out soon. <laughs> I don't know. It seems it's one of these, you know, book, you know, book publishing yeah. takes forever, you know, and my initial book, the first book that I wrote was How Punk Rock Made Me a Better Teacher. And it included the punk rock story and the teacher and teacher stories. And I got a very high powered New York agent right away. And he was like, we're going to send this out to auction. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm quitting my job. You know, <laughs> like this is great. But what happened was people either like the punk rock story or the teacher story. And um, they didn't like both together. So the punk rock stuff was very finite. It ended in 1982. And so that was easy to, to work on. And I was lucky enough to get bazillion points to publish it. And then I figured I would publish the teacher part later. I've since decided, I don't know that I want to publish anything else after this. And you, you know, as a teacher, and these are all teacher stories, um, that are included in the book, I, I feel like you can sort of descend into, you know, virtual, uh, virtue signaling and white saviorism and stuff. And, and I don't, I don't think that I want to, that I want to do, even though I have some really cool stories, I think I'd rather do like a spoken word thing and go, and go around and tell them, um, something like that, because, um, everybody's story is different and I want to respect my students and um, their backgrounds and their journeys. And so uh, this may be it for me, you know, this and the SSD book and, and that may be it. And I still do articles and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, um, it was an experience. It was, you know, it's, it was a bucket list thing. I always, from the time I was seven years old, I wanted to write a book. And like when that box of books came and I opened it and saw the, you know, oh my God, you know, it's just the best feeling in the world. And that'll stay with me forever, you know? So, and I have my Philly book party is Saturday night. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, it's, um, it's going to be at the church and on 21st and chestnut and um, it's over 200 people coming. So it's crazy. It's going to be a lot of fun and it's a homecoming of sorts for me because I haven't been down there, you know, since before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
So, which is awesome. You get to go to Philly. Yeah. Any, any excuse to go to Philly is a good, you know, good excuse. <laughs> well, it has been really great talking with you, Nancy Burrell, who's the author of I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and All Memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion. Thanks for talking with me on New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for having me on. I totally appreciate it. I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> 